0: Uh, Well, football season is upon us, for better or worse. It really depends on who you root for, but it's here, and it's, you know, for me, I get so many uh, fresh memories when football comes. It was really a great big part of my life growing up, but one thing I don't miss this time of year, when I was at Mississippi State, we had to carry our playbook around everywhere we went the entire season, and that thing, there was a three-ring binder, it was about three inches thick. Hundreds of sheets of paper of plays that we had to know and memorize and always constantly refresh ourselves in the playbook. You couldn't go anywhere without it. It became, you know, in a sense like a Bible to us. And if that wasn't bad enough, every single week as we prepared for a new opponent, Uh, We would add more plays in. They were called wrinkles. We would add a couple of new plays in that the coaches thought might kind of fool the, the specific opponent that was upcoming that Saturday. So we'd put in some wrinkles. We'd learn the new play on Monday, and then we'd spend all week practicing it to try to run it on Saturday. But if by about Thursday in practice, if we hadn't mastered that wrinkle, that new play, by Thursday, Coach Sparky Woods would yell out on the practice field, he'd yell out, Scrap it! So he'd throw throw his little book up in the air sometimes for effect. Scrap it! We'd have to go back into the meeting room after practice, open up our binders, and he'd make us tear that sheet out of the binder, crumple it up, and throw it away. Because if we couldn't master that play on the practice field, we for sure weren't going to be able to run it executed in a game, Right? Um, now, this happened a lot at Mississippi State, by the way, as you might imagine when I was there, but um, here's, the, here's the truth, and this is not true for, about sports. This is true for all of life. It's not worth a whole lot if I say I know something, but I cannot apply it to real life. If I say I know something, if I think I understand something, but I can't actually do it, then it's really not worth much. And y'all, that is so much of what the book of James is about right there. When God speaks to us through James, the emphasis throughout the book is on faith lived out, faith exercised. It's, this is, it, 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 Christian faith is not something that we merely ponder the ideas. No, having received Jesus, understanding more of him, it always is meant to live, to be lived out for us. It's meant to be exercised in the real stuff of life. And so what we see in James consistently is an understanding of our beliefs, yes, but always practical application, always what we ought to do in response to it. And so James makes it crystal clear. He told us, we saw it last week in verse 18, James told us that God has brought us forth by the word of truth. That is a statement of salvation. We've been given new birth, a new life by the gospel of Jesus. But now that we've received it, James says, it has to produce real effect in your life. He's going to tell us in chapter 2, we'll see later, that it's of no good for me to say I have faith and have no work. That is to say, I can't say I have faith if it doesn't show up in how I live. And he really begins to make this turn significantly right here today. So James is about to get concrete with us. And for some of us, you know, I'm the the—I'm frankly, I'm the kind of guy I like to ponder. I like to read Romans. Uh, not that Romans doesn't have application, but there's a lot to ponder in Romans. James really just cuts to the heart of our exercise. He goes from playbook to the game here uh, pretty quickly. And so God's grace and God's truth produce new life, and new life is meant to be walked out. It's hands and feet. This is not good theory today. This is practice, right? This is the real deal. So what are some of the marks of the new life? James gets right to it in verse 19. He says, This you know, or know this, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. What I see right here is a heavy emphasis on Christian integrity. Um, Think about that first verse, verse 19. This is pretty famous. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The, The opposite of that command is a person who's quick to speak and slow to listen. A person who speaks, who's very impulsive in their speech, but doesn't really listen. Now, if you encounter a person like that, what's your conclusion? Your conclusion is not probably so much, I don't really like their personality. No, you probably think they're rude. Maybe even arrogant, because what they say is always more important than what you have to say. They don't ever ask about you. They're quick to speak. They're always impulsively speaking. And James says a person might also be impulsively angry. They're always ready to kind of fly off the handle. They kind of live with an undercurrent of anger that's always ready to bubble over. Now, again, we wouldn't look at that person and say, well, I just don't like that person's personality. No, we say that person's unloving. That person lacks empathy. That person's not gentle. They're not patient. They're not kind. What what James is talking about there in verse 19 is not personality. And so often, that's my temptation. That's what I want to make it into to say, well, yeah, you know, I don't listen very well, but that's just, that's my personality. I'm just a guy. No, James is talking about Christian character. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Those are not personality issues. Those are character issues. That's why I say this is a matter of integrity. I think I mentioned this before, but integrity comes from the word integer. It means one. Uh, Integrity means that what you believe and how you live are one. They're integrated. They're the same thing. You're without hypocrisy in that way. What I believe and how I live are one. And so we act in accordance with our faith. We live in such a way that it reflects what we believe. That's what a Christian's meant to be. But if you're arrogant, if you're quick to speak and you never listen, if you're impulsively angry, James says you cannot achieve the righteousness of God, meaning your life will not reflect God's nature and character. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian necessarily, of course, but it does mean that your life doesn't show it because your character is not living up to your faith, your confession. And this is, a, this is just, it's a big point for James. Practical righteousness. I can't pacify myself with saying, well, sure, I believe it all. I believe it all. Well, yeah. J- James will tell us later on the demons believe in God. Right? That doesn't make them Christian, that doesn't make them of, of a certain character, right? Belief by itself is not the fullness of our faith. It's, it has to be lived out. And, and James, really, if you walk through the book, as we're doing right now, you'll notice how you speak and how you relate to others are central for him. It's so practical, how we speak, how we treat people, right? It's gonna keep coming up over and over. He see, we see it in verse 19. So I know if, if you're like me at all, you're gonna see verse 19, and that is a, it's a sucker punch. Um, because if we're willing to see this, through the lens of character, not just personality, then we know we've got work to do. We know we've got uh, maybe a ways to go. Um, but even if you're feeling good about yourself in verse 19, James opens up the, uh, the horizon a little more in verse 20. He's not just talking about issues of speech and anger. Right? Look at it, verse 20. Uh, verse 21, rather he says, "Therefore, putting aside all filthiness." and all that remains of wickedness. He's talking about all sin issues now, not just those in particular from before. All filthiness and all residue of wickedness, he says, put those things aside, and in humility, instead, with humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, I mentioned this a minute ago. This was verse 18 from last week. Uh, We have been brought forth by the word of truth. If you are a Christian, that means God has given you new birth, new life through the gospel of Jesus. Now, as a result, as an outcome of that new birth, James says, put aside your sin. Now, literally, the the Greek phrase, the picture that James is giving to us here is a similar picture from the Apostle Paul. To put something aside, in this case, to put your sin aside, James is treating it like taking off an old, soiled, ratty piece of clothing and doing away with it. Something that clings to you, your sin, something that is dirty, that smells bad, but a lot of times, if you've ever had one of those old kind of t-shirts, something you used to do yard work in, or you wash the car in, or you wash the car with and then put it back on, maybe some of us have done that, Um, you, you don't smell it, right? It's your shirt. You don't see anything wrong with it. But everybody else around you notices. Nobody else, there's a radius wherever you go because of that shirt. James is saying that you treat your sin like that shirt. You take it off and you don't just put it back in the closet. You burn it. You throw it away. You put it aside. Do that with your sin. Think of it like that. Your sin wants to cling to you. Your sin wants to convince you that this is just the way I am. I can't smell it anymore. James says, get rid of it. And you know what he says? He says, get rid of all filthiness... And all residue of wickedness. You know he doesn't. He doesn't mince. He doesn't mince words. When when James talks about sin, I know. If I mean if I if if I'd rather James say, "Kyle, put off your bad habits," because that's how you know, that's that's how I kind of want to treat my sins. Bad bad habit. Like I said earlier, personality. Right. But James doesn't mince words. He calls sin what it is. He says, "Put aside filthiness and wickedness." We spent a lot of time on this. Uh, Last Sunday, but y'all, if we soften sin, if I see, if I look at my sin as a personality issue, a bad habit issue, if I don't think of my sin as filthy and wicked, I'm not going to be moved to do anything about it. That goes back to the old t shirt analogy, right? If it doesn't stink to me, then I'm not going to get rid of it. Um, so James says, be sober and be urgent about the reality of your sin. It's filthy, it's wicked. Put it aside. Now, how do we do that? How do we we make a conscious effort to expel sin from our life? Well, he tells us in the middle of verse 21, he says, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Y'all, the human heart is not capable of rejecting sin all on its own. If you've been around the block enough times, you can, you can affirm that. You know it's true. The human heart by itself is not capable of rejecting sin. And so the command here is to humbly... We're humble because we realize how far we fall short of God's righteousness. We're humble because we recognize how desperately we need, needy we are for God's intervention. We humbly receive the word implanted. Now, this is, this is the unique gift of God's truth impressed upon the heart of a Christian. Verse 18 says we've been brought forth by the word of truth, but now actively, presently, we're meant to receive the implanted word. Um, what's the difference there? Oh, y'all, when, when, God, when God promised in the Old Testament a new covenant, the new covenant which was brought about in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, this new covenant, God promised it beforehand. In Jeremiah 31, it's one place where God said it. Listen to what God says. He says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That was a promise. And that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're living in the outcome now of God's fulfilled promise in Jesus. And do you see what he says? He, he essentially says what James says. He's going to plant his law, his truth within us. On our hearts are written the graces and the truths of God. And so it's the word of God which God implants within us that saves our souls. Um, now, I, I don't, I don't want to go on too much of a rabbit trail here, but James is talking to people who are already saved. So when he speaks of the Word of God, which is able to save your souls as if it's something ongoing or maybe even something yet future, that might be confusing to us. He's not talking to people who have not come to faith yet. And so what does it mean that the Word of God implanted is able to save your souls? I wish we had a lot of time for this, but we, we, maybe I'll tackle it fuller one day. But when the Bible speaks about salvation, it speaks of salvation in an all-encompassing eternal kind of way, both past and present and future, right? So let's say that uh, I became a Christian. I came to faith in Jesus in 1999. That is for me past. That happened. That was a specific moment in time when I received the grace of Jesus uh, in my life and became a follower of him. But the Bible also says that I, Kyle York, I right now, I am being saved. Not that my salvation is lacking somehow and I need more of it, but that it's an ongoing reality in me, in you. And the Bible also says we will be saved, that there's an eternal reality in our, to our salvation that the consummation of God's work is still yet to come. That's why in 1 Peter 1, we're told to set our hearts, fix our hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is to come, right? That there's past, present, and future to our salvation. So when James talks about the Word of God implanted, which is able to save our souls... We should not have this mentality that I became a Christian at such and such time in my life, and now I'm just trying my best to do good, be good. Right? Now, that, that basically says that God set you up for success, but now you're, you're, it's up to you to maintain it. And that's not what the gospel says. Now, the Apostle Paul says, Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation as if there's something lacking that you've got to complement. But he says, work it out, meaning live in the reality of your salvation. Live the new life of Christ each and every day. You were saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. That's all entirely the work of God that we now get to walk in and live out. And so whether it be sins of of speech or sins of anger or anything else, James says, put that all aside by the power of God's grace and God's truth. This is not grit your teeth and do better. This is humbly receiving the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Y'all, you know, this is, I'm still on the rabbit trail, by the way. Okay, I'm almost, almost at the end. This is unique within Christianity. I try to say this frequently because I think we, we need to hear it. Our religious impulse says, God gives a law, God gives a path, God gives a way of salvation. And then it's up to us to devote ourselves to those rules, to that law, to that path, and to the degree that you and I diligently follow God, we'll be rewarded in kind, we'll be saved, we'll enter paradise, we'll find enlightenment, you fill in the blank. That's our religious impulse. God gives the law, God gives the path, and we follow it. But Christianity says that God does not accept you on the basis of your ability to obey him. God does not accept you on the basis of law. The Bible says he accepts us by grace. Grace means unmerited favor. There's nothing to earn. There's no reward at the end that somehow if we'll just live up to the right standard, then we'll get through the door. No, Christianity says in our failure to keep God's law, he forgives our sins. In our in in the corruption of our sinful hearts, right? Filthiness and wickedness, James James calls it. In the corruption of our hearts, God grants us a new heart. It's his to give, it's ours to receive. In our ignorance of righteousness, in my complete fumbling of, of life at every turn, God writes a new truth on our hearts. Psalm 40, we saw it a minute ago. God puts a new song in our mouth. This is God's gracious work. By his spirit, he implants a word of grace and truth in us that brings salvation to us. That means, y'all, listen, we're talking about setting aside sin. Know this for certain. Your ability, the power to reject sin and live righteously comes from God. It works through God. You, you and I never get the credit for it, nor do we deserve it. It's God's gracious work within us. We've got to be sure about that. Otherwise, we'll be constantly working hard to achieve something that God has already given to us for free. Um, but, don't let me convince you that somehow this is all passive. This is simply something we receive and there's nothing to do, right? That's, that's, that's how you receive Christ. There's not, there is nothing to do. But James makes it clear that having received him, you go from the playbook to the game. Look at verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. If you are a parent of children, you know this routine really well. We say to our kids, did you hear when I told you to do such and such? Yes. Then why didn't you do it? Have you you ever done that before? Like 16 times a day? Why didn't you? If you heard me, why didn't you do it? Well, James has given us that routine right here. James is coming to us really in a very fatherly way. He's not picking on us. He wants to see God's grace uh, applied. Right? He wants to see our faith exercised. And so when when James says, you can't just hear God's word, that's not enough. You've got to do it. And that's such a basic command. that seems so common sense. I sometimes wonder, why is that even in the Bible? Isn't that, shouldn't we just know that intuitively? It's not enough to hear. You've got to do it. No. No. And here's, why James, here's what James says. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who what? Delude themselves. Now focus in on this, because this is natural to every human heart. Delusion means you have a false view of reality. Right? If you're an Ole Miss fan or a Mississippi State fan, we often live in delusion, thinking that things are ever going to turn around for us. We have a false view of reality. To delude yourself means you deceive yourself, and the word could also mean you defraud yourself. You both deceive and defraud yourself. And this is what happens to people who hear God's word but don't act on it. We try to enjoy spiritual feelings without engaging in spiritual exercise. Now, every last one of us knows what this is. We've all done it. Some of us are living that way right now, perhaps. We enjoy spiritual feelings without engaging in spiritual exercise. And the threat, the sincere threat is this. The more we hear the word of God without applying it, the more deluded we become because we convince ourselves that hearing it is enough and I'm doing perhaps fine enough on my own. I'm doing it okay, you know. And we deceive ourselves all the more. The more we hear the word, we think we're doing a good thing. I'm hearing the word. But the less we practice it, the more deceived we become. And he says, don't become like the man who looks in the mirror. Do you see that illustration? It's interesting that James would, would say it like this, because it seems like something that just, does this really happen? Do people really look in the mirror and then walk away and forget what kind of person they were, forget what they look like? Um, well, think about it like this, because this has happened to me a time or two or a thousand. Um, you walk by, you look in the mirror, you glance in the mirror, okay? Maybe it's, maybe it's mid-morning or you're about to leave, you know, for work or school. You look in the mirror and you notice some irregularities, okay, I'm being nice. You notice some irregularities. You notice, okay, I got a piece of, I got salad in my teeth or something. I've got, I got a cowlick right here that, that's there from the night before, you know, that I haven't done anything with. Um, I, you know, I, you smeared your lipstick, or you, you got a spot you missed when you were shaving. It hadn't been shaven. But maybe you're in a hurry, or maybe, you know, I don't know what's going on in your life, or maybe you just, you know, you just, you know, you're, what I'm doing is not that important today, so it can, it can wait. And you rush away and you go about your day. Well, before long, you've, in, you've forgotten entirely the problem. All right, people might be looking at you in a strange way, but you, you've forgotten that the issue was even there to begin with because you only gave yourself a passing glance. Now, we might say, well, that's just, you know, that's just carelessness about your physical appearance. No big deal. And maybe it's not. But James is not talking about carelessness here. James is making a much more serious point. He says, if, if you read God's Word, if you read your Bible, or if you hear God's Word, you're looking into reality like a mirror. The mirror doesn't lie. The mirror tells the truth. You're looking into reality. When you read or hear the Bible, we are consistently getting a clear picture of our sin and God's righteousness, we're being exposed to truth. But it's so very easy for us to walk away from that experience, to acknowledge what we've seen, and yet to walk away from it unchanged, unfazed. Y'all, I I cannot tell you how many times I've read or heard a, a passage on sin in the Bible, on sin. And my only thought was, you know, so-and-so really needs to hear that. I'm only thinking about someone else's sin. I don't see my sin. I don't see it. I'm hearing the Word. I'm being exposed to reality, to truth. But I'm turning away from the mirror. I glanced, but now I'm forgetting what I've heard. I'm forgetting what kind of person I am. I'm looking in the mirror, but then I'm walking away. I refuse to see how the word of God applies to me in that moment. I can only think about how it might apply to somebody else. Now, y'all, all James is doing here, you think James is being hard on us maybe a little bit? He's just echoing what the whole Bible says about itself. The whole Bible says this, that you can't, you can't hear it and claim to know it if you're not doing it. Uh, if we only took the words of Jesus, only Jesus, we'd come to a very quick consensus on this. I wrote a few down just, just off the top of my head, honestly. In John chapter 14, four different times in John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you'll do what I say. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. In Matthew 28, Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe, to obey all that he commanded us. Obey it. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, only those who hear his words and act on them have built their life on a sure foundation. Otherwise, you're building your life on sand because you're hearing the word, but you're not doing it. And y'all, that's, that's just Jesus. If you, from Genesis to Revelation, the scripture is clear on this, that right hearing is, is meant to lead to right doing. We're not, we're not uh, balloons that forever receive inflation. Eventually we'll pop, right? Because we're simply receiving, we're never living, we're never acting. James says you can't do that. Okay, so how do, you, how do you change in this way? Because maybe you're like me, you're convicted of this. Perhaps I hear a lot more than I act on. Well, he tells us in verse 25, How do you you keep from becoming a self-deluded hearer? Verse 25, this is so good. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man or this woman will be blessed in what he does. So isn't it obvious here that James is talking about more than a passing glance? We may glance in the mirror on our way out the door, but you can't just glance into God's Word. Okay? And, and you can't just listen to a helpful sermon. I hope and pray that my sermons are helpful. I work hard on, on Sunday preaching. Okay, But a sermon isn't it. A sermon is not a complete diet. Right? Um, you can't just hear a helpful sermon. You can't just glance into God's Word. He says, to the person who looks intently. Who looks intently. This is the same... You know, James is writing in Greek... This is the same Greek phrase, looking intently, that was used of the disciples on Easter Sunday when they discovered the empty tomb. They didn't just glance at the empty tomb and go about their way. They got down into the tomb and they scoured it with their eyes. They investigated. They wanted to know where Jesus was, why he was missing. They were perplexed and so they looked very carefully and they pondered very carefully. They looked intently and that's that's us. James says, if, if you want to resist becoming a deluded hearer, you've got to look intently into God's Word. You've got to read it for yourself. You can't just podcast it. You can't just go on a sermon. Sermons are helpful. They're wonderful. Yes, maybe so. But you can't allow that to be your only intake. That's not a healthy diet. You've got to read God's Word for yourself now we try to help with that we have a bible reading plan it's on the back table as you go it's very simple and very manageable it's about five chapters a week that may not seem like a lot but for a lot of us that's that would be considerably more than than what we average but it's something that we provide that frankly both adults and kids can can use it's not it's not meant to be complicated or difficult but it's meant to be consistent it's meant to get us into the Word. We also have small groups. We have discipleship opportunities. If that's something that you desire, you can make a note on your card and I'll follow up with you and I'll connect you to somebody or or perhaps a group of somebody who can help walk with you through the word because we're meant to live it out, not just individually, but in community. And it helps when we have iron to sharpen iron, right? But y'all, at the end of the day, it has to, for us, it has to be a burning heart. It has to be a desire that says, I want to know and follow Jesus such that I refuse to coast on by. I refuse to just take vitamins and never eat meals. I'm going to study the Word of God. I'm going to devote myself to Him. I'm going to look intently and not deceive myself with spiritual feelings merely. Um, y'all notice what we're looking into now. I saw, I've already i already spoiled it. We're looking into the Bible, of course, the Bible. But notice how James defines it here. He doesn't, he doesn't say the Bible. He says, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it. Now, this is roughly, James is making a, a, a statement about the Old Testament. You know, this is interesting. James, perhaps, was the first New Testament book written. And it's really hard for us to imagine this. But the, the, these Christians who are receiving this letter, they didn't have the New Testament. They, 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 nobody ever stood up and said, now turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter hadn't been written yet. The New Testament is literally being written as we speak here. And so when James talks about the perfect law, the law of liberty, he's talking about Genesis through Malachi. That's what the early Christians had, and that's what they would have studied and and looked intently into. But he gives it uh, character qualities, in a sense, when he talks about it. He doesn't just say, read your Old Testament. He calls it the perfect law of liberty. He makes two statements about it. When, When James calls it the perfect law... What he means is that God who gives that law, God himself is perfect, and therefore the law is without fail, the law is without blemish. We're the problem if we fall short of it, right? The law has been weakened through the flesh, our inability to keep it. But the law itself is good, it's perfect, it's right. It reflects the perfect righteousness of God, and therefore to abide by the law is always to abide by a perfect standard. You will never go wrong. You will never go wrong by looking into and abiding by God's perfect word but he also calls it the law of liberty. And you don't see this a lot in the Bible where this kind of phrase is given to us. The law of liberty, that seems contradictory, doesn't it? It seems like an oxymoron. Law is confining, law is harsh, law is difficult. How can it be something that gives liberty, right? How can it be freeing? Well, the truth is, if you look into reality and you abide by reality, right? God's word is the truth. Then it sets you free. God's word is not meant to crush you or imprison you. It's not meant to confine you in such a way that you experience no joy in life. No, God's word frees you to experience joy by calling you out of our calling me out of my sin and calling me to righteousness. And so it's true freedom. Because only when we we only truly thrive, we only flourish when we live in concert with reality, with God and His truth. It's the perfect law of liberty. Um, but there's a, there's a, give me, I'm going to do a second rabbit trail. We all forgive me today on this? There's a second meaning to law of liberty that's, that's absolutely necessary for us. When James calls it the law of liberty, this is not just a reference to the Old Testament merely as words on the page. Um, this is a reference to the law being fulfilled in Christ. Um, apart from Jesus, you cannot, will not, Keep the Ten Commandments. Okay? When, when, when we say law, we can narrow those down to maybe those, the big ten from Exodus 20. Um, apart from Jesus, you cannot and will not keep the Ten Commandments. That's, that's our whole problem. We cannot and will not obey God perfectly from the heart, and therefore the Ten Commandments, if only those ten were held against us on the final day, those ten would easily condemn us because we are not righteous in God's eyes and we cannot live up to his righteous standard. And so when James, listen, when James commands us to abide by the law of liberty, he's not saying, put your head down and get to work already. As if he thinks that somehow we can bear the burden that nobody else in the Old Testament could bear. No, James is saying that in Christ, you can now truly obey God from the heart. You can. It doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly. Nobody does. But because of Jesus, you can obey God from the heart, and now you are free to obey God without any fear of condemnation. The law of God does not crush us. It does not imprison us. It will not condemn us, because the law has been fulfilled once and for all through the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your behalf. This is high-level stuff, I know, but y'all just, we need to be able to rest in this. When we're called to look intently into the law, and we call it the law of liberty, because you have been born again by faith, you are, child, you are a child of God through Jesus Christ, you do not obey God as a slave to a master. Put your head down and get to work. No, you obey him as a child to a father. You have already been brought in to the house to a father who loves you and now gives you commands built not just on righteousness, but on love. He loves us. And therefore, his word is liberating. Um, Even on the days when we fall short, which is every day, his word is liberating because in Christ we've been given liberty. Um, James is not calling you to legalism here. He's calling you to freedom, to liberty. In Christ, you can obey God from the heart. You can please God from the heart because you have his grace forever. Um, so y'all, let, let's look with me again. We're going we're to begin to kind of turn the corner here and wrap up. Look at, look at verse 25 again. I don't want to get lost in the details. Look at it all together. He says, One who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So God has given us a new birth and a new heart. By his spirit, God has has planted his word within us. Obedience to God, our active walking out of obedience, it brings righteousness, it brings liberty. And so James says, press in. Don't take this for granted. Don't be content to feel spiritual feelings. Press in. Look into the word, abide in the word. Y'all, that means you make your home in the perfect law of liberty. We can't just live off devotional thoughts. We can't just live off decent sermons. We have to make our home there. And if you do, James says, you will bear fruit for God. You will be a light to the world. You'll live a life pleasing to God. You'll bring glory to God's name and you will be blessed in what you do. That's such a simple promise, but it basically covers everything, doesn't it? That if we look intently into God's word, that if we love God and how we uh, how we seek out obedience, we're not obeying to earn anything from God. We're obeying in response to His grace. You'll be blessed in what you do, y'all. Jesus, Jesus died for us to redeem us and to make us new. If all that is is a wonderful idea then it will pacify you momentarily and periodically but it will never you'll never actually feel and experience the reality of it because it's not meant to be pondered only it's meant to be lived that's why in titus it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to create for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good works. Jesus died to create a new community, a new family called the church, and that we would be passionate about living it out. And I think so often it's, 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 it's easier, it's just easier to look, to listen, to, to, to ponder, to enjoy, and not walk, not live. But y'all, it's, it's, it's not a theory for us. It's, it's meant to go from playbook to the field right it has to be something that that we live so we've got to receive the word humbly we've got to look into the word intently we've got to abide by the word faithfully um, I know most of us have a way to, to go in this maybe there's a couple of us really knocking it out of the park um, bless you and keep going okay but the, for the rest of us um, we stopped back at verse 19 <laughs> quick, to hear, quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger right? we still haven't gotten over that one um, but, but y'all, you know, I realize this. So many of us right now, we know better. We know we ought to live it out. We know, you know, but we just find ourselves mired in what James is commanding against. I know it the same way that you know it. And so we, we, we see today the problem. We've seen the solution to humbly receive the word implanted, to look intently into it and to abide by it, right? James gives us problem and solution. Let me give you encouragement as we close. Uh, the encouragement is... That Jesus Christ is incredibly tender with us. Uh, Jesus Christ is faithful to you far beyond your imagination. Um, this resolve today to walk in faithful obedience to the word, to reject self delusion, and to practice righteousness. Y'all, that's not going to come all at once. Just get that, get that category out of your mind. It's not a, it's not a light switch. It's a daily sanctifying reality. It happens over time. It's not going to happen all at once. That conviction that for you might be strong right now is going to be tested when you wake up tomorrow morning. It doesn't happen all at once. We stumble in many ways, right? But you will never once hear your Savior say, Jesus will never look at your stumbling and fumbling efforts and say, scrap it. He'll never say it. He will never tear your page out of the book. He will never give up on you. He is faithful to those who are His. If you have received Jesus Christ by faith, He will never leave you nor forsake you. If you have trusted Him for His grace, then, then He abides in you just as He calls you to abide in Him. That will not change. And so in your stumbling, in your all your, your recognition of how far you fall short, um, do not for one minute believe that God is, uh, that God's heart for you is punitive and condemning. He says, you are mine. Every sin is covered by my blood, and I will perfect you. I started a good work. I'll bring it to completion. Right? Let that be the engine that motivates all we do. He will never scrap you and move on to a newer model. He'll never find somebody better than you, right? Because you couldn't cut it. He will bring about his righteousness in your life. Um, He simply commands us to be faithful to him. Stop deluding ourselves. Look intently. Delight in him and obey him. So would you you allow this truth today to embolden you? It needs to embolden me that we might leave behind any self-delusion, any spiritual feelings, that simply rattle around inside. No, let's become effectual doers by the grace of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we we thank you this morning that our acceptance is not uh, built upon our performance. We're being called to, to... get after it in this scripture. We're being called to, to set aside our sin and to do the word, to live the word. But Father, grant us the, the wisdom and the enlightening truth to know that our salvation is not predicated on what we do and how well we do it that we live now in response to what we've been given. And so don't protect us, please, Lord, from this ongoing temptation to think, I've got to do more, I've got to do more, I've got to do more. God won't love me. God won't accept me unless I'm doing enough. Protect us from that lie. Show us that in Jesus Christ, all that needs to be done, all that must be done has been done perfectly on our behalf. And because that is true, Father, make us effectual doers. Because we have been declared righteous already, make us desire righteousness in how we think and speak and live. Why else? What, what else would we spend our lives on if not the, the pursuit of Jesus Christ to be conformed to his character and his image and to bring glory to him considering all that he is and all that he's done for us. Make us doers of your word. And Father, where, where perhaps we have had a mentality that says that is cold and ugly and dead, just to do the word will make me a, will make me a Pharisee. Oh, Father, would you, would you correct us in that? That your word brings liberty that your word creates loving, gracious, joyful people, not cold, hard, ugly Pharisees. That if we will receive Jesus Christ and trust his grace and follow him with all our hearts, that we will in time become more and more like him. Forgive us, Father, where we have deluded ourselves, but thank you, Lord, that you don't hold it against us. Your, new, your, your mercies are new today. And Father, you, you will lead us in paths of righteousness for your glory, for your name's sake. So, Father, give us hearts that desire that above all. And Lord, make these, make these words sting from James today, but make them sing. Make them sing that we would want nothing more than our lives to look like this by your grace and by your truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.